Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 31 of Robot Radio. This is Greg Stanwood. I'm here along with Andrew Martin. Um, today we're going to talk about mostly sort of wrap up some of the performances and some of our feelings about the 2010 season, but first we're just going to catch everybody up with what we think about the playoffs so far. So Andrew wanted me to bring up that the Twins have already been eliminated, and he predicted them to go to, I think you said, all the way to the end, right? Yep, I can. I, I thought they were going to play, uh, go to five, go to seven, and go to seven, and win all of them, and very tough, scrapped out, battled to the end uh, series, but everybody in their rotation let them down. Um, Liriano looked poor. Pavano didn't look miserable, but he didn't look good either. Um, and then last night, uh, between Dunsing and then the chain relievers had to go from there. They just didn't have anything. It was 6 nothing against the Yankees and like the, I want to say the fifth or sixth inning. And then, uh, from, it was just done from there. Just mm-hmm. completely done though. Yeah, I was definitely rooting for them. And from my perspective, you know, I had a, a team picked out to uh, who I would have preferred to win for each series. And unfortunately, it really doesn't look good for me. The only team that I had picked that was uh, looking pretty good was the Rangers. And, of course, they've come back and lost their last two games. And uh, Tampa Bay is forcing a fifth game. Well, so far, it's looking like roughly what I predicted, at least so far. Um, the the Minnesota the Yankee series is the only one that went completely wrong because I called that many in five. And instead, the Yankees have swept. Um, Tampa Bay and Texas are going to five, like I called. Uh, the Giants are up 2-1, and uh, I, I could go to four or five. We'll have to see. I think it could. Uh, the Giants could take it away, but we'll have to see what the Braves are throwing in game four. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the remaining series, Philadelphia and Cincinnati, uh, as we are recording this on Sunday night at about 7 o'clock, um, Cincinnati is down... One nothing. One nothing, and the top of the fourth. So yeah, I mean it's it's looking like a decent game so far. I mean Cole Hamels has uh, gone three innings, struck at two, only allowed two hits so far. And on the flip side of the coin, uh, Johnny Cueto has allowed one unearned run in three innings, striking out two, walking one, and allowing four hits. But this you know top four, this could all change still, and we'll be kind of keeping an eye on it as the game goes on. I might throw a little interjections as we move along, but. Um, so far, it's, I mean, they, they've been decent. I mean, Minnesota just just got outclassed, and their pitching just fell apart. And man, it was very frustrating for those guys. Uh, especially, I think lacking Morneau really did hurt them because they just could not get anything offensive going. They did have some good performances out of a few guys, but for the most part, I mean, it was just they don't have. Uh, was, um, my roommate was pointing out the fact that Minnesota is the only one of the playoff teams that lacks just a superb. Uh, just an over-the-top ace or superb lefty. Um, yeah, at least in the American League, they didn't stack, they didn't stack up well with anyone. Hmm. I mean, because, yeah, Texas with Cliff Lee, you've got uh, David Price in Tampa, and then CC Sabathia in New York. And Minnesota, they have a, they had a decent rotation, but it was they, didn't, they just weren't top-heavy enough to really make it to a play, playoff series. Yeah, I... Uh... I think for the most part, excepting the Twins, we've seen a lot of fantastic pitching uh, throughout the uh, uh, the playoffs so far. And a lot of people, I've, I've been reading, you know, comments on the crazy ESPN boards or whatever, people saying, oh, it's so boring, where's the homers? But um, I've actually really enjoyed watching these these games. Uh, even here, at, as you were saying, the uh, Philly-Cincinnati game here is... Uh, putting up some good pitching performances, and, you know, we've had some fantastic performances, not, uh, you know, obviously the Roy Halladay 
performance. And then uh, Tim Winscombe was fantastic. And, uh, yeah, so I think that uh, I find that sort of game entertaining, to be honest. I, I, I find it a lot more uh, involving when you have to uh, really pay attention because every single pitch uh, is, is going to, to, uh, to count. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it kind of depends on the, how well a well-pitched game is. Because if it's the kind of game where both teams keep getting stuff started and then just fizzle out as soon as they get guys on base, those are boring and frustrating. But if it's both pitchers just dominating back and forth, I mean, yeah, it's still, it's still sort of boring because you want to see all the runs and excitement. But at the same time, seeing dominance is always more entertaining than seeing teams just, you know, trip two feet off the starting line. Hmm, yeah, and we haven't really seen any complete blowouts, and I don't think we usually do in the playoffs, because it's really the one place where there's absolutely no uh, considerations made in terms of uh, trying to lighten the load on a player, for example. This is your chance to shine, and this is your chance to, this is your only opportunity to win yourself a championship. There aren't any more, uh, well, we'll go with our second best reliever instead of our best reliever today. You know, so you always wind up with sort of a, a, t- a top-heavy uh, lineup and, and pitching performance because everybody on the roster is the very best that is available. Yeah, the only exception I might have thought would be last night, uh, that a Saturday night, uh, Minnesota and the Yankees, with the Yankees with a six-run lead and then a, eventually a five-run lead, no thanks to Kerry Wood. Uh, they, they they threw Mariano in the ninth, but John Miller and, and uh, Oral Hershiser are both saying that it uh, – it's like they don't have to throw Mariano. They can throw just about anyone in there. They could bring out Joba, but they just want to make sure Mariano gets work because they could have a long layoff here. Mm-hmm. Um, what was uh, what I thought was especially interesting is just just Kerry Wood. He's been a uh, he's closing for the Cubs and then closing for Cleveland, and then he got traded to the Yankees as a setup man, and uh, because you don't usurp Mariano Rivera from his seat of closing. But uh, it seems like Kerry Wood, who was out there to get work, um, kind of suffered from Houston, the Houston Street situation, where if it's not a, a tight game or the save situation, he suddenly just isn't as sharp. And he looked like crap. He worked a lot of high counts and, and walked a lot of guys and hit a guy. And, oh, it was awful. Mm-hmm. Actually, did he hit a guy? I may be thinking of the uh, – just earlier that evening, I had uh, – I had to swing by a uh, uh, Best Buy, and I was playing the uh, MLB 10, the show demo on the, one of the PlayStations. Four-inning game, and it was Yankees and Twins, ironically enough. CC Zabathia versus Scott Baker, and uh, and yeah, I definitely uh, plunked, plunked Jorge Posada on an inside slider. Intentionally? Yeah. No, no, no. I was just trying, I was trying <laughs> to paint the corner. I ended up uh, spilling the paint, so uh, yeah. Uh, well, no, I can't remember. I don't think I saw all of the Carrie Wood inning. I just kind of looked it up afterward. Uh Let's see. So again, I, I I'm worried because I feel like there's a there's a significant chance that the four teams I don't want to see advance are all going to advance. Uh huh. And so the I'm trying to think. I'm trying to to imagine to myself between Philadelphia, San Francisco, New York, and Tampa Bay, who am I going to root for? It's not going to be the Yankees, and it's not going to be the Giants, so I'm presumably rooting for Philadelphia and for Tampa Bay <laughs> to make it to the World Series. Well, if, fair enough. I'm still going to go with – I'm going to have to take Texas. I don't know why I am. I don't like Texas all that much. Well, again, uh, I'm speaking assuming that Texas gets beaten by Tampa Bay. If Texas okay. if Texas wins tomorrow, 
or uh, I guess they're playing two days from now. Yeah. Then absolutely, Texas is easily the one I, I have on me because I was rooting against Tampa Bay, but um, again, I I we discussed it before we started recording, but we haven't mentioned it here yet that uh, the uh, interesting thing about that series is. You know, Texas beat Tampa Bay twice in Tampa, and then Tampa came back and beat Texas twice in Arlington. And so, in order for Texas to win, they're going to have to go back to Tampa Bay and beat them there again, which would produce a five-game postseason series that has only visitor winners, which has never happened before. Uh, So I'm worried that Texas is going to blow it, and, uh, you know, Tampa's hot now, and then they're going to go back and kill them, but I think uh, I'm not ruling it out. I'm just worried that uh, we're going to wind up with uh, those four, which are the teams that I was rooting against. Yeah, with Tampa Bay, if they uh, if they pull it out, I'll root for them to go the rest of the way. In the National League, if the Giants go ahead and take game four and, and win the rest of the way, I'll just be rooting for the Meteor. Yeah, I, I mean, I understand that, but I, it also seems to just kind of like a cop-out to me, if you know what I mean. I think that... Uh, I think that there's always somebody you prefer in some way or another. I would only say Philadelphia because I'm still just awestruck by their top three. I mean, honestly, Halliday, Oswalt, and Hamels is such a disgusting top three that it's not that I actually want them to win because I don't like the Phillies. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I just, I like to see it when... I like, uh, everyone's favorite thing to say is, oh, well, it looks good on paper, doesn't mean it's necessarily good. I would like to see something on paper actually be as good as it is on paper. Hmm. Well, I don't like the Phillies either, but I do like them more than the Giants. So, between the two NL teams, and again, this is all hypothetical, neither Philadelphia or uh, uh, San Francisco have cemented their position there, but between those two, I'd be backing Philadelphia all the way. Yeah, the way I see it is if Tampa and New York end up at, well, New York's already advanced, but if it ends up at Tampa, New York, ALCS, and then a Cincinnati, or not Cincinnati, Philadelphia, San Francisco National League uh, championship series, I don't know what to do with myself except for potentially root for the American League, because either team that wins, I would want Tampa to win. If the Yankees make it to the World Series, I'm rooting for whatever NL team they oppose. I can get on board that sentiment. I mean, as much as I want the Giants to lose and want Philadelphia to lose, I really don't want a repeat of last year because then it's just going to be, oh, let's see how the Yankees outclass the National League again. Blah, 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 blah. I mean, listening, I, oh, boy, just the fact that they've been like, oh, it's a repeat of last year, we'll never hear the end of that. And then the Yankees' dominance will never hear the end of that either. I mean, Derek Jeter was able to hit, I don't want to say a lucky single, but he was able to, he was way out in front of a pitch, but he managed to make solid contact all the same and pounded it into left field, into the gap. And all the announcers could say was like, well, to the layman, to the amateur eye, that might appear like he's way out in front of it, but he really meant to do that. He got <laughs> lucky. It's not hard to say he got lucky. And you can even talk about how Derek Jeter's a luck out. You know, not only is he good, but he also makes his own luck. You can say that, too, and everyone will be like, okay, whatever. At least you said luck, and we know you're full of crap. But trying to, you know, talk down to people and, uh, just, bleh. I, mm, I wish that, uh, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish that the major networks didn't get these series purely because of the fact that we have to put up with their insufferable announcers. I would listen to George Frazier and Drew Goodman every day, all day, rather than listen to John Miller and 
whoever else they throw up in the booth. And twice on Sundays? And twice on Sundays. And, ugh. <laughs> Just, ugh. I've, I've found the announcing people to be worse than this, but at the same time, I agree that it seems like so many of the major network personalities are kind of, you know, slow and uh, weirdly methodical, and as you say, somewhat condescending. I, I feel like they, they don't have a lot of passion for anything. They, 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 they pretend to, if that makes sense. On the same time, though, in a way I can see how it makes sense, because if you think about the fact that the postseason is usually – any sports postseason – I mean, think about people who don't watch a lot of sports, or they watch one sport over the other three, or other yeah, the other three of the big four. But they'll say, "Oh, but blank playoffs are great." You know that people are going to tune into the playoffs for the sake of the playoffs who aren't normally um, watchers. So, in a sense, it's kind of good to have the, you know, here's all the generic baseball lines and and crap you already know being said because the people who don't know it are going to be learning it for the first time. But at the same time, when you hear Chip Carey talking about, you know, during the 2007 uh, NLCS talking about uh, how Colorado has this crazy humidor thing, I'm like, are you joking me? This is this is covered by USA Today like three years ago, man. Where have you been? Hmm. And, and I don't know. I mean, at least I'll say this. Thank God for no Chip, Chip Carey. It, it doesn't help that most of these people probably call like three games a year. And they they don't really they have to get into a, a coverage zone before they they actually start doing this. And it seems like the, they're all trying to summarize an amount of full season baseball that they have missed because they've been reading you know log lines about what went down as opposed to actually witnessing any of this stuff. Well, remember a lot of the uh, the the playoff announcers are also uh, like ESPN Sunday Night Baseball and stuff like that. I mean, not necessarily on the television ones, but on the radio, at least, if you're listening on ESPN radio. You're hearing the guys you've been listening to and watching on uh, on Sunday Night Baseball on ESPN. So at least that much familiarity. But no, your point is right, that a lot of them have to catch up to where they were. Mm-hmm. But John, I know John Smoltz is in the booth for, uh, I believe, the Yankees-Minnesota game last night. And uh, I don't, I'm not exactly sure who he was an analyst for, but he was definitely active in, uh, in uh, either analyzing or calling the season this year. Right. So, unless you have any other postseason notes before we move on, we have some uh, uh, 2010 wrap-up stuff to talk about. only thing I'm interested in anymore is what Cliff Lee does, because it'll be the Tampa-Texas Game 5 might be one of the more interesting ones of the playoffs, because you got Price versus uh, versus Lee again. I mean, Wade Davis did great in Game 4, but Price versus uh, Lee will be very interesting. Here's one quick note we can talk about. As far as, as, far as was the case uh, going out of the game... Atlanta is going to start Derek Lowe on short rest, but San Francisco might be pitching Bumgarner. What do you think of that? Well, ugh. I can see them not wanting to pitch Tim Lentz to come on short rest, but this is kind of do or die, you realize. I mean, I guess their thought is is that if they don't take Game 4, they have Lentz to come in Game 5, which is an okay way to look at it, I suppose. And uh, Bumgarner's been pitching well as of late, so having him there for Game 4 isn't a bad idea. Atlanta has to win this game, so they, they don't have uh, Wait, you said they're Derek Lowe on short rest? Mm-hmm. Lowe? Really? Not Hudson? Hudson just pitched... Uh, That's right, yeah. Just pitched today. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, I guess uh, Derek Lowe, really? Uh, for some reason, I always mix up Derek Lowe and Tim Hudson. I know that they're drastically not the same pitcher, but they're both extreme ground ballers, yeah. et cetera. And so, for some reason, I always get them mixed up in my head, even though I know very well which one is which. Um, oof. Derek Lowe, really? Well, he, he's the only one. I yeah, mean, no, it makes sense. I don't really trust Kenshin Kawakami to go up there. Or, I don't. Uh, I don't think Kawakami even made the postseason roster. Exactly. I mean, my point is, I don't trust any of their better, uh, any of their other options. Mm-hmm. They can't very well go go a chain of relievers and go nine innings that way or anything. I mean, I don't know. I guess we'll have to see uh, if Derek Lowe's sinker balling ways can overcome the Giants, and then. Uh, if the Braves can hit Bumgarner, because, I mean, if anyone's could be giving up the game, it'd be Bumgarner, honestly. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I don't, uh, I, it makes sense that they'd be throwing Lincecum in Game 5 if there is a Game 5. Right. I figure uh, they have nothing to lose by throwing Bumgarner. I guess not. It just seemed like that this was their plan, even if they lost. <laughs> they, I would assume if they lost, they would change it. Yeah, yeah, there's no way around it. I mean, it, it, they, they, if you're an elimination game, you throw Lincecum. And that's they're not going to be an, elim- an elimination game until game five. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyhow, I, I'm done talking about the playoffs. I don't okay. know you. Yeah, that's fine. Let's. Uh, what we're going to do, I think, is uh, uh, all of the Purple Row admin decided to, or were told to submit uh, team-based uh, end-of-the-year awards where we pick three people to submit for certain uh, qualities. And I believe these are being posted... Uh, in the during the day on Monday, but I'm not 100% sure on that. So you might actually see these show up, but for this podcast, the two of us are basically going to talk over our picks and uh, just kind of discuss what we uh, thought about these. So um, where should we start? Um, well, we could probably start with the gimme with Pitcher of the Year. Okay. Uh, do we work our way from the top down since it's obvious? Well, because there's no surprise at the top, we might as well go top down. Yes. Uh, so, unanimous six votes, seven votes for Jimenez. Uh, I picked De La Rosa. Uh-huh. No, I, yeah. I, I, I'm I, looking at the list, and it says here that you picked Aaron Cook. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. God, I just love that missing sinker ball every which way. I couldn't, couldn't get enough of it in his freak injuries. No, you. If if you picked anyone other than Ubaldo for the best pitcher of the year, you're wrong. If you picked anyone other than Ubaldo for the best pitcher in Rockies history for a single season, you picked wrong, because 2010 Ubaldo is the best we've ever seen, hands down, no questions asked. And there's no anybody who says otherwise is really just trying to be difficult, because there is no no statistical metric, no traditional stat lines, nothing. He set the single season mark for strikeouts. He set the single-season mark for pitching wins. Um, didn't set the mark for innings pitched, so I guess you could try to sharpen your axe on that. But uh, his sub-3 ERA, his et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's no reason not to say Ubaldo's that this is the best season in Rockies history for a pitcher. I suppose some people might try to argue that the fact that he died out so quick was somehow uh, – evidence of some sort of lack of consistency, but again, when you're looking at the entire season, the high points in the first half more than make up for whatever slippage he happened to have at a couple points during the season. I don't think he died out so quick. I mean, he definitely lost a little bit of sharpness, but a lot of it was honestly, as much as I don't want to say his first half was a lot of luck, there was a lot of luck 
Oh, you yeah. don't carry an ERA as low as Ubaldo Jimenez did during the first two months of the season without a lot of luck being thrown in there. It would be a good ERA no matter what because he was pitching very, very well. But at some point, I mean, yeah, I mean, even the best pitchers, like Roy Halladay didn't have an ERA that low, and Roy Halladay is a better pitcher than Ubaldo Jimenez. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, yeah, so, I mean, we can – I'm not trying to say that Ubaldo didn't have a fantastic season. He had a, he had the best in Rockies history, but I don't – I don't want to say that his second half where he looked a lot shakier and walked more guys and, and whatever, I don't want to say that that was uh, um, the, his true colors coming through because that's just a stupid thing to say. I'm guessing that his season line – I was going to say that his first half and his second half were probably on opposite ends of the spectrum of where he actually is. So if you average them out, you probably have something about where he actually was, which coincidentally is his season numbers. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so Yvaldo Jimenez, I think we've said plenty about him. He had a phenomenal season. Our hats are off. We stood in awe at everything he accomplished this year. So our second pick was Yuli Shasin. Um I think that's also pretty evident, uh, obvious pick. I think, uh, let's see, five people voted for Shasin second. Yeah, um, I picked Shasin second. Did you pick Shasin second? Yep. Yeah, I, doing, just running the numbers for pitching war, if he had been up for an entire season and pitched, uh, you know, a number two starter's worth of uh, pitches, because he pretty much was our number two this season when he was up, um, he would have been like a four-and-a-half win pitcher, which is downright solid. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he had a very, very good season that didn't get enough notice, and a lot of that was because the Rockies sent him up and down a couple times there. So um, I don't think he would have won Rookie of the Year over Jason Hayward but uh, or Buster Posey, for that matter, but he would have definitely contributed more than the other guys. I can see – we talked about this back when it actually happened, but I can kind of see why they sent him back down. But at the same time, I mean, I don't know. It seemed a disservice to the team and to the kid to, you know, pull him out when he was doing well. Right. Okay, we'll have plenty more to talk about Shasin, too, because there is a Rookie of the Year category <laughs> that we'll be getting to. Um, it looks like the two of us picked Hamill third, and this was uh, uh, me, at least, working under the impression that this was only for starting pitchers because relievers had their own. I probably wouldn't have picked Hamill if I realized we could have voted for Matt Belisle, but uh, the vote is the way it is. <laughs> so, um, I'll stand on my Jason Hamill pick. Personally. Okay. He made 30 starts. He had some trouble. He had some injury trouble. Had to miss a couple starts. It was like weird. I think it was like hamstring trouble or something like. I don't remember exactly what it was, but just small tweaks that he had to miss a start for. The kind of things that happen to normal pitchers. Over yeah, the and season. He, he was not out very long. So yeah, no, not at all. But it, if you look at his 20, 2009 numbers, he posted three point eight wins above replacement. This year, three point seven. Jason Amell had a good year, despite the fact that he had some very shaky outings. Mm-hmm. And his dead arm by the end of the season was definitely not good, but he. Uh, he turned in a fair amount of solid work this season. Absolutely. I, I don't feel... I'm not going to hang him out to dry. I, yeah, I'm not either. I'm not necessarily feeling bad that I put Hamill there. I think out of the starters, he's the easy third choice. So, um, reliever of the year, we both picked Matt Belisle. Which is the probably the best, <laughs> the correct choice. I, I could see a case being made for Betancourt. There were two Betancourt votes, yeah. Which I don't disagree with at all. I mean, despite Betancourt's uh, shaky beginning, he had something like a strikeout to walk ratio of eleven. Yeah, no, is... it was it was it was godlike. He he it was he had something like eight walks all year. 
The uh, actual numbers, uh, survey says eight walks. You're absolutely right. And two intentional walks, which are completely out of everyone's control. It's a yes. management decision. Uh-huh. 89 strikeouts, eight intentional walks, or unintentional walks. <laughs> eight <laughs> all, unintentional walks. All eight, <laughs> all eight of his walks were unintentional. Yeah. Uh, yeah, or were intentional. That would be pretty funny, but yeah, eleven point thirteen strikeout to walk ratio. Um, the downside of that whole story was that he did was a bit more home run prone than he was last season, but uh, and, and more hit prone in general, I believe. He allowed a two twenty eight batting average. Right, and I, I just I, well, he also allowed a three thirty one batting average on balls in play. So yeah, considering how many guys he struck out, um, that just kind of tells you. Uh, how solid he was! Oh, absolutely, and he was—he was my second place vote, and yours as well. It's mine as well, but we should talk about Belial a bit more here. Yeah, um, let's. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll start by saying that uh, you know it's always been a joke that I hate on on Belial because of his, his uh, the circumstances that got him on the team in 2009. I certainly. Bias or no bias, did not see this coming, and I don't think most people did. I, although uh, Andrew Fisher will tell you he totally did. <laughs> well, he predicted it, and it was a yeah. pretty bold prediction. But uh, Matt Belisle led the majors in innings pitched for relief pitcher, ninety-two innings over seventy-six games. Belisle had twelve decisions. You don't hear about that many decisions coming from a relief pitcher very often. I mean, unless you're that one guy with Washington who had like more wins than most starters. Oh, great, um, Tyler Clippard. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, Matt Belial was just phenomenal, and I almost feel like the team jerked him around too much because they never settled on a role for him. I mean, at the beginning of the season, we thought it would be a mop-up, but then he became a late-inning reliever, but then he became a single single batter reliever, but then he became a late-inning reliever, but then he just kind of did all three at the same time. And, and I don't understand why, when he is pushing just an absurd workload, we kept throwing him all the way into the last game of the season. Yeah, n- not to mention, we'd throw him in games where it seemed weird that we were throwing him. I mean, look, I understand. I, I actually wrote an article on this in one of the rock piles a couple weeks ago, how our bullpen construction, even though we all the fantastic players in that bullpen this year deserve fantastic credit for showing up and, and, and uh, you know, pu- putting up career performances in some cases, but at the same time, the way we actually constructed that bullpen was not ideal because we had so many open voids in it that our good pitchers were each taking up like two or three roles in the bullpen. And so we would see Belial, for example, not only pitching in late innings where we're ahead, but early innings when we're behind and stuff like that, just because we didn't feel comfortable putting anyone else out there. And that's, you know, one of many reasons that he'd get, he'd get his workload tossed so, so, so far up. And of course we pitched him in multiple innings sometimes too. So it, it, it was awkward. Yeah, it, it seemed like the only guys, there were three guys in the bullpen who had a set role. Houston Street, because he's Houston Street and the closer can only pitch the ninth in a game where we're winning by less than three runs, or three runs or less which I thought was utterly stupid. And I've heard other kind of criticisms of that as well, that Houston Street, it's mismanagement of the closer role again. I mean, if I mean, I'm, the, the good thing about us is the back end of our bullpen was good enough, even though Betancourt had a shaky start to the season, and then, you know, had his blips later on down the line, like that Matt Stairs home run and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you had two solid guys in eighth and ninth, but... 
I mean, I, I I don't know. It seemed like Street was only worked when they absolutely needed him, and when they finally like, oh wait, Street needs work. He was you know rusty enough at that point there that he was completely out of practice, and we gave up two runs over you know you know in, in a mop up situation, right? Which was just silly talk. But uh, no, we didn't. Like last year, we had the. Uh, I guess it wasn't that much different last year. The, oh, the third guy I was going to say was. Uh, Joe Bimel, so Bimel, Betancourt, and Street, the only ones a set. I don't know role. if I, I don't know if I agree that Bimel was a set role simply because we we'd throw him out as an alternative to Belial, as well as a as a one or two uh, out guy. So it was kind of a mix between those two. Oftentimes they were kind of one and the same, but we'd we'd see him pitch an entire seventh, and then the next day he'd face one batter. Um, I guess I don't know. I guess I kind of saw it as a. Joe Bimel being the seventh inning face left, facing left-handers in a setup role, or maybe even the eighth if Betancourt found himself in trouble. He, he was that sometimes. I just think there were also a lot of times where they'd give the whole seventh to Belial and not worry about the matchups. They'd just say, go get all three outs. And then uh, sometimes they do the same thing for Bimel. So... Which kind of annoyed me, but, you know, hey, whatever. That's, um, that's because they viewed Flores as the one-out guy. <laughs> yeah, and Flor- I mean, in, the, in, in all fairness, Flores was not a bad uh, one-out guy. He, uh, if you look at his splits there, if my internet would ever load, um, he definitely did show a, uh, let's see, versus lefties, he'll, uh, no, take it back, I'm completely wrong. <laughs> At one point, he at, earlier this season he was better against lefties, but when, when at the after the point where they DFA'd him, he was allowing almost a 900 OPS to left-handers. So I, it, yeah, no, bye but bye, it, Randy. Most of the success he had this season was with us and not with the Twins. So if you're including that, then that's a uh, good point. I might be uh, his numbers might be skewed from there. I wish. Well, I, uh, I've started to view Flores, and and keep in mind that I was I've always been a fan of Flores, but uh, as a I, I kind of viewed him as a Quintanilla type. We never used his roster spot or him as a pitcher, that, that that roster spot on the bullpen as a whole, unless it was like fifth or sixth inning and we had to go to the bullpen to get a lefty out, or we were you know way ahead or way behind and we needed an inning eaten up. Well, he only came in... I should say that his numbers with Colorado probably were a better indicator because um, with Minnesota, he... Only he played in eleven. He pitched eleven games. He only, but he only made it through three point two innings. He had ten hits, two two runs, two homers, two walks, two strikeouts, and faced twenty three batters. <laughs> Oops! Not with a whip over three. That's I mean that's like minor league Shane Lindsay numbers. Just I mean, well, except Shane Lindsay would probably have you know ten strikeouts and ten walks rather than two and two. <laughs> well, but, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, Randy, Randy Flores is more or less effective with Colorado. I, now with the advent of Matt Reynolds, there's really no reason to even think about bringing him back, but I'm oh, not no. going to hate on the guy for his performance this year in Colorado. I won't either. I just, I just think that, that, that kind of like the whole Quintanilla thing, that spot on the roster could have been better used than Randy Flores. But if you go back to the reason we're talking about Flores, which is Joe Bimel, Joe Bimel splits lefties and righties. Definitely got hit hard by righties, 862 OPS, but he only allowed a 653 OPS to lefties. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, he also got some big outs during the year. He he would come in, you know, with, uh, you know, uh, one out and the bases loaded, and he'd find ways out of those situations. Yeah, 
And if you look at his straight up, uh, his, uh, his fielding independent numbers, his defense independent numbers, his strikeouts, walks, and homers, he wasn't outstanding, especially if you factor in his righty splits, because he was not good against righties. But, uh, what he was effective at doing is getting weak contact, and he got a lot of weak contact, which doesn't show up just based on defensive independent numbers. But if you look at stuff like, uh, um, if you've ever been to Stack Corner on the, the linear weights on uh, batted balls, um, he was he was about as effective as his ERA. Well, not quite as, you know, he had like an ERA of what, negative one earlier in the season just because he was that effective. And for a while, you know, it was like point .5, yeah. Yeah, it was, very good. He ended up the season with a... Three-something. Yeah, three-four. Um, but his low ERA early in the season wasn't entirely unjustifiable. He actually was getting the uh, the weak contact and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, a lot of his success was versus lefties. I wish I had his strikeout. Well, you can't really get strikeouts per nine, but uh, out of the... Let's see. Eh, I didn't really strike that many guys out either. I should... Uh, 15 strikeouts to seven walks, which isn't bad. Um, but out of, but 95 at bats or 102 batters faced uh, a left-handers only struck out 15 of them. Whatever works, I guess. I mean, if a 6.53 OPS is kind of hard to argue with. Yeah. Now of uh of the entire staff, I was the only one who voted Bimal for third place. Everyone else picked Street. Um, which I you know I certainly don't disapprove. I probably would have been more likely to pick Street if he didn't have so many of those points where he. Like we were talking about earlier, he came in in mop-up duty, and I mean, I guess that just kind of lowered my my realization of exactly what he was he was doing. But at the same time, he also missed a third of the season. Yeah, and a lot of if you look at the Houston Street splits as the season went on, uh, it, he he was kind of he was an interesting bird to say the least. He actually had a very solid September. Um, struck out, let's see, let me get the raw numbers here. September, he, 14 innings pitched, a 1.93 ERA. He struck out 18 batters. He walked two and had one intentional walk. Gave up one homer. Very strong August, or September. Very poor August. Very strong June, or July, I mean. And then mediocre at best in his four innings in June. Mm-hmm. But that's to be expected, considering he was coming off the disabled list. Right, and I think that's probably what made the difference for me when I was picking these people. I, I'm, it, it should, certainly shouldn't be taken as like a sign that I don't trust Houston Street or that I don't like him. I, I fully expect him and hope that he will be a healthy closer next year. Well, it's funny, because looking at the way this is going, if Houston Street's going to be a bit shaky, I'm okay with him still in the ninth. I mean, the mentality is your ninth inning reliever is the most important reliever of all time, because it's a ninth inning, and so on and so forth. I kind of, I mean, I, granted, I have a video game mentality about this sometimes, but uh, when my ninth inning, um, it's, sometimes guys can be head-cased in the ninth, and yeah, you want to keep an eye out for that. But for the most part, as long as a guy is not a complete choke job every single time he comes out on the mound... He's probably going to be okay in the ninth inning. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd rather have a guy like Belial pitch a bigger workload because he had such a phenomenal season just across the board. And same thing with Betancourt. I mean, I know his ERA, again, wasn't that great because he was a bit more homer prone this, prone this year. And then his first month or so was very hit prone as well. But you see my point. I'd rather have the two guys who are doing the best work be your seventh and eighth inning guys is a distinct chance they're going to get more work than your ninth inning guy. Mm-hmm. Okay. And with Street being as fragile as he was, um, especially coming off the, the injury and then the rehab and then coming back from rehab and then getting hurt again during rehab and all the setbacks, mm-hmm. um, I was okay with him having a somewhat lesser workload. 
I mean, he wasn't – last year was something otherworldly. He was very, very good last season. And this year he was just a bit more hittable. But uh, he still got the job more or less done, and I was okay with it. Mm-hmm. But uh, before we move on entirely from relief pitchers, I want to give a hat tip to Manny Corpus, which seems completely wrong in every account. But, no, I, uh, I totally know where you're going with it. So go His first it. two months of the season, March and April. In March, he had a 106 ERA, struck out 12 batters. He walked seven, which sucked. But then his May, he uh, 14 innings, he had a 3.77 ERA. Not great, but nine strikeouts to one or two walks. Um, but the downside is two home runs came along with that. My entire point is that Corpus, well, Houston Street was gone, did very admirably. Yep, so and, was, and and it, I, the, the way I always describe it on the comment section is, whenever somebody's criticizing Corpus, I have to remind them, guys, we started the season with Morales' closer. It turned out very quickly that that wasn't going to work, and Street wasn't ready. Corpus gave us six weeks in that spot of more than acceptable performance. And it was only right as that was ending and Street was ready to come back that he broke down. So I think his value on the season should be very tangible. Yep, I mean, for as, for as mediocre and as, as much as the motor was sputtering and not getting going when we started the season, Corpus was one of the few guys who seemed to really want to be stepping up to, to try to keep a job. And uh, if, if it, we wasted a lot of money on Manny Corpus based on that contract we gave him after 2007, and I think is it, is it, is he a, no he's not a free agent no yeah he's got one year left in that contract yeah although he, here's the interesting thing I, I I've explained this before Corpus's contract is unusual because it didn't buy out all of his uh, arbitration years he will make three point two million next year on the disabled list recovering from surgery but after that he has an option year which is obviously going to be declined but he will not have the service time to declare free agency which means we decline it and he gets arb instead. Which, may, well, or, no, or, or he gets non-tendered, <laughs> something like which that. Which could be the case. Um, yeah. Honestly, the way I see it is, if we cashed in his career, or at least his career with the Rockies for those two months, I mean, I never wish for a guy to be hurt and wash out of baseball, but I'm okay with the way it went down. Just because you uh, you're okay with the fact that it wasn't an expensive contract, or I'm not sure what you're getting at. Well, the, the idea was is that Corpus is supposed to be this insane closer of the future and that we'd never have any troubles now that we have Manny Corpus. Well, we have guys coming up in the system like, you know, Rex Brothers, for example, or potentially Casey Weathers, even though Dan O'Dowd's even starting to be down on the guy. Um, Corpus is the kind of guy that we just don't need anymore. Mm-hmm. We're not, I mean, I got to say one thing for me, he was much better against righties than he was against lefties. Much better. Like, lefties was where he had most of his trouble. But, uh... That's kind of besides the point. My thought was that we needed him to give us those six weeks, and he did, and then he went back to being terrible. Um, I should be fair. He pitched ten very solid innings in July, but uh, past that, I mean, that's when he got hurt again, and bye-bye Corpus. Mm-hmm. If, if, if his career with the Rockies burns out, and my lasting memory of Manny Corpus is, hey, he gave us six weeks of being a very acceptable closer while our real closer was out... I'll take it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I will too. I've always been a little higher on him than most people, I think. Uh, I, I, I know a lot of people will look back to uh, his last couple of years and say, oh, they were, the, they were completely awful. But if you look at it, he's had strong months every year he's pitched. Uh, he just can't, can't keep it together physically for much longer than that because he ends up getting hurt in some way or another. I mean, last year he had bone chips and, uh, yeah. 
the reason a lot of the sour taste is going to remain is just because of the fact that he showed up to camp out of shape and not really ready to work for his job. I never really got the impression that that was actually true because pe- what, people were saying that he was like, oh, he's 20 pounds overweight, but then they, they, they put up a television feed the next day and he looked exactly the same. I mean, I, it felt like that rumor got started somewhere and it wasn't actually true. Well, it, it's something to be noted because if the beat felt it was something worth reporting and not just, oh, no big deal, they probably wouldn't have mentioned it because... I don't know, just from what I've seen with our beat reporting, they're not too keen on just starting rumors for the sake of starting rumors. No, I don't think they are either, but it's possible that it was either exaggerated or misinterpreted because, you know, I follow the beat guys too, but most of the the complaining about it that I saw was not from them. It was from people on the blog. And it, it seems like the kind of thing where maybe they said, oh, they're not happy with Corpus's shape when he got to camp, and then it just kind of, you know, ex- uh, it expands from there. I don't know. Maybe there is something to it. I'm I'm certainly not denying it. I just didn't get the impression. I mean, he he looks the same to me. <laughs> you know, Manny Corpus's problem is he doesn't slop enough pigs. Okay. If you know th- those Western Panamanian pitchers are so entitled. <laughs> the the like four of them. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And for those of you who don't get the joke, um, it's not really worth explaining. Okay. Because I, I don't think I get it. <laughs> How do you not? Oh, okay. oh, never mind. Punt. Okay. Uh, let's move on to offense. You picked Tulowitzki. Everybody else picked Cargo. I was not. Uh, Cargo's home road splits just killed me. Yeah. He was, I, very, he was very Dante Bichette. And while I love the batting average and I love the dingers and stuff like that, I, I don't know. I felt that the offensive – I mean, if we're looking at this as position neutral – um. I don't know, I'd be, it'd be much more of a neck-and-neck neck race, but as it stands, Tulewitzki wasn't, like, head and shoulders above him as far as uh, batting goes, but um, prorating his... It, I'm doing the uh, the almost unforgivable, well, if he had played those six weeks when he was out with an injury, mm-hmm. um, and saying that he would have been that much better. And I guess I'm more impressed with Tulewitzki... Well, it's almost like trying to establish uh, the baseline for an MVP vote. And I forgot, do we have an MVP vote in here, or is it just offensive production and then defensive production? And then rookie and uh, best player performance. But, but, so, But we didn't do an MVP. A team MVP? No. My thought is just the fact that uh, Tulewitzki is the face of the franchise now. I mean, with, a due, with due respect to Todd Helton, it's Tulewitzki now. And he... Um, he took a lot of steps to his early slump. Well, he, well, speaking strictly by OPS, he wasn't phenomenal. He was at least making better contact on the ball, getting on base better than he has in previous eight August. The growth we saw from Tulowitzki, I thought, gave him the um, the the nod for me. Seeing him as a uh, blossom, is kind of a weird word to use, but uh, really kind of becoming the player that we know he can be. Mm-hmm. And I guess the because he's been with the organization that much longer and seeing what he was able to get done, and then also a lot of my voting is weighed on the fact that he had such an absurd September that was rivaling Babe Ruth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was honestly, if I had to really like remake the vote, I'd still do it the same way, but it would be like one and one A. You know, <laughs> I, I don't really, I don't really consider Gonzalez a number two to Tulowitzki. I consider him like one. Eh, you know, one. 
It's like, Tula Witsi is one, and Gonzalez is one? Totally right. And, yeah, and I, I, I can also totally understand why you gave the edge to Tulo, not only based upon the hot September, but the fact that Gonzalez's offensive performance was kind of uh, flawed in the sense that it was at home pretty much exclusively. He was very bichette. He hit straight fastballs, and that's about what he did all season long at home. On the road, Oof. I mean, for a center fielder, his numbers are great, but that are, are acceptable at least. But on the road, he was a drastically different player. Next year, if he corrects these splits, I'm not saying that he's going to be suddenly be you know that's better on the road or something crazy like that. But if he can make um uh make the steps that he needs to be a more rounded batter at home and on the road, I'll be happy to give it to him next year if he does if he has anything even remotely similar with more um realistic splits, but I, don't, I, was, I guess I was just more impressed by Tulowitzki than I was Gonzalez. Now, this this is interesting, because of the seven of us, we were the only two that picked Ryan Spielborgs for third place. Uh, I wonder if we were thinking the same thing. I'll go first. I picked go him on. because he was one of the only other players who had consistent offense um, in on both, ho- the, on both home and road uh, games. Interesting. That's a that's a pretty good way to look at it. Considering uh, our considering our road struggles, yes, Philly was a good thing. Yeah, and I mean, it, n- no offense to Ryan Spielborgs, but it should be kind of sad that we had to pick people like Ryan Spielborgs as the third best offensive player of the year. Uh, everybody else picked either Mora or Stewart. Well, Mora had such a good September that, well, and then and August filling in for yeah, sure. Yeah, it was it, exactly. It was a, a very positive thing, but he, he, you know, he was not particularly valuable in the early part of the year, and I think that I I absolutely love the performance he 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 brought forth uh, for the end of the year, and I would not be surprised or or necessarily particularly upset if they looked into trying to get him back again, despite his age. We already talked about that last week, though. Um, My rationale for voting for Spilly um, was purely a statistical one. Um, I looked at uh, Fangraph's batting runs, and he was our third best performer on the team. Mm-hmm. As far as as far as batting runs and value accumulated purely based on his bat, that doesn't Gonzalez, surprise me because he was so much more consistent than most people on the team. Well, Gonzalez, um, Gonzalez was our leader, despite his awful road splits. He was our he was our um, uh, batting production leader. He, was, he had like mid forties runs produced or something like that, and then two Lewis, he was behind him with like mid mid to late thirties. But then the next highest was Philly at like six. Uh. Yeah, you Which can is see. Just sad. I, I wish I could have voted for nobody, but I guess I had to <laughs> heard. That's kind of what I felt too, and that's what I was hinting at when I was saying above that you should you don't want to see Ryan Spielborgs as your third best off- offensive uh, contributor. And I, he, it's a kind of batting line that you don't hate on because it wasn't bad, especially not for a guy who played part time, but just purely because of the it's it's supposed to be we were supposed to be a fearsome lineup and. Oh boy! It, yeah. Uh huh. Well, uh, it's it's like you said. If Spilly's your third best batter, you got problems. So I mean, props to him. But yeah, we're already at forty five minutes, so we might want to hurry through these last three categories. Let's do it. Um, rookie unanimous Yelish Shasin. Yeah, if you pick other than Shasin this year, you were again had a grind to axe. Grind to axe. Nice. <laughs> if you had an ax 
axe to grind against the guy, or you weren't paying enough attention. It was Jelly's Chassine. Now, the second group was either uh, Reynolds or Rogers. You picked Rogers, I picked Reynolds. Um, You didn't pick Reynolds at all, but we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, Why? Uh, I was a little confused. I put Reynolds there because the, the weird thing about Reynolds is he's still going to be a rookie next year too, which means if he has a really good year, we're probably gonna I'm probably gonna put Reynolds again on the rookie list. So that, that's a little strange. But in terms of as I understood, anybody who is eligible to be a rookie was allowed to go on that list. So I voted for Matt Reynolds. But you tell me why Rogers. Um. Rogers really put a lot of stuff together um, as the season wore on. He spent more time up. I mean, a lot of it was – once you got past Justine, it kind of became a, all right, who didn't suck and who was up for the longest. And Rogers had a lot of time up, and he made some starts for us, stuff like that. He wasn't awful on all of them. I mean, past Justine, our rookie crop was pretty weak this year. So, I mean, mm-hmm. granted, we didn't really have much need for rookies this year outside of Justine. And then other than that, it was role players. Now, does Herrera still qualify for rookie of the year? He would – I don't know. <laughs> I don't think he had enough plate appearances in 2008. I don't think he did either, but he, regardless, it didn't really occur to anybody else to vote for him, apparently. Um because I, I, you, you, your third place vote is the only vote for Herrera, so I, I guess I threw him in there. Just I mean, yippee for the guy. And, and I'm I'm, me- I'm mentioning and giving him props in his uh, um, in my I'm writing an article. I might have did I mention it? The article I was writing about wins, lost injury, only off recording. Okay, yeah, well, that's going to be upcoming soon once I have my giant spreadsheets of doom and evil put together entirely. But uh, Herrera, well, filling in for Tulowitzki, played good defense, and he was clutch and slap singles and all sorts of stuff like that. And he's a feel-good kind of guy. And if you uh, if you subscribe to the uh, the WPA stats, which are the ones that kind of give a guy credit for hitting the big game-changing double or whatever, it takes timing into account. So a guy could go one for four but have the most meaningful hit of the game, and he gets credit for that. Mm-hmm. Herrera was worth over a win in Tulowitzki's absence by that metric. And uh, that, that's pretty good. I mean, I, I'm I'm happy to give him a golf clap for that and an attaboy. Now, going back to Rogers, it's interesting. I didn't actually vote for Rogers in my top three, but I should say that Rogers is one of my favorite players on the team right now. I'm sure some, at least some portion of the people who listen to this read my post about his crazy awesome skills off the field. <laughs> uh, he, I, I, I always hang out by the bullpen during the. Uh, the games that I go to, and I saw during warm-ups, no joking, Esmil Rogers threw a ball from the warning track to home on the fly. And for somebody that small, I was pretty impressed. <laughs> He's also just a really nice guy in general, but I didn't... Uh, well, I agree that he had a, a very large amount of growth this year, and I think there's potential value for him, especially out of the pen in the future. I think that... Uh, Ultimately, I didn't feel comfortable enough with the amount of work that he did that, to put him quite on the list. Uh, so he he would have been fourth. A lot of it just, too, is because of the fact if you can go out there and throw any amount of innings and not be a complete waste of space and complete failure, you're going to accumulate value. I mean, because there's a lot of guys out there who can't get out of the third, and uh, Rodgers could most of the time, mm-hmm. and so... 
you know, bully for him is about all I got to say. Like I said, really past Yulee's Chassine, it kind of was like, okay, who didn't suck? Right. And, and Rogers didn't suck all not, the time. He was, he was better more often than he was bad. Neither did Matt Reynolds, though, and Matt Reynolds got my second. Precisely, uh, and that's votes. why Reynolds, I mean, I said Herrera, and if Herrera's not eligible, I give it to Reynolds. Uh, and I'm still confused if Reynolds is eligible. Obviously, we're, we're, we're just going with it as it is, but I think that... Uh, it's just weird voting for somebody who's going to be rookie eligible again, but at the same time, it makes sense. He's still uh, he's still a rookie. So, as I far think as it'd be funny if a guy came up and uh, he posted like a hundred ten or hundred forty at bats or something like that, which kept him under rookie of the year eligibility, but he batted like five hundred with eighteen home runs or something like that, just absurd out of the world numbers, and won like two consecutive rookie of the years. <laughs> Fascinating. I think that, I don't think I think once you've won it, you can't win it again. But I think it would be really, really funny if the same guy won it twice in a row, just because of rookie of the year eligibility. All right, that's just my silly thought of the day. Okay, so let's see. Defensive player and clutch performances. Yes, um, I lost my window. There it is. Uh, defensive player. I voted for uh, I voted for Gonzalez. Most everybody else voted for Tulowitzki. There was one other vote for Gonzalez. Um, I was actually surprised to see you vote for Tulowitzki after you uh, and your lollipop antics. <laughs> I hate him. I hate his lollipop antics, but it doesn't mean he doesn't get the job done. Oh no, it certainly doesn't. He was my number two vote. So the reason I rage against Tulowitzki's lollipop antics, I think he's a giant show off, and I hate that. <laughs> but at the same time, he got the job done. Um, the fielding metrics supported him this year, said that he did it. He he improved in the areas he needed to improve, and I'm content with saying that he did a great job. Right. Okay. I hated watching him do that great job, but he did a great job. Yeah. Okay. So, um, my third choice was Fowler, and he was your second choice. We picked the same three, just in a different order. And I I don't think that there's there's a lot of debate behind that. There. We th- those are our three most. Uh, most defensively tooled players. So you're pretty Barmas. Well, no, I, uh, yeah, that's true. But at the same time, there were a couple votes for him. But I don't think that uh, I don't necessarily know with the amount of contributions that he had if he belonged above those three. If that makes it, sense, it's kind of a circular argument. It's like if you look at Gold Glove awards, it's usually voted to the guy who at a tough position who. Uh, Bad of the best and didn't make a complete jackass out of himself in the field, which is completely what gold gloves are not supposed to be. Uh-huh. But um, it, it, in that regard, Barmas's case is kind of undermined by his batting. He was such a bad batter that he lost playing time, so didn't get defensive chances, so didn't log enough time as a defensive player to be the defensive player of the year in mm-hmm. my book. Right. So it's I'm not literally saying Barmas didn't win because he didn't bat well enough, but that ended up being why it happened. Right. It's an, an indirect uh, cause. Yeah, so I mean, I with Fowler and Gonzalez, it's it's again a tricky thing because I'm such a stats guy. I still don't really trust UZR, the the most commonly quoted uh, fielding metric out there. But it, I mean, it hates both Gonzalez and Fowler, mm-hmm. and I don't understand why. But whatever. I mean, they're getting the job done. They made a lot of ridiculous catches when, and granted, ridiculous catches oftentimes are the product of a guy misreading a ball and having to make a ridiculous diving play. Like, Nate McLeod's a terrible center fielder, yet he won a gold glove in 2008, I think, mm-hmm. and did not deserve that golden glove. He was awful. Um, similarly, Adam Jones in the American League, he uh, won a gold glove last year when the correct answer was Franklin Gutierrez of the Seattle Mariners. But, uh, 
I don't know, we've seen dramatics out of Gonzalez and Fowler, and they both seem to cover ground effortlessly. They seem to work well with each other in the outfield next to each other. And I have trouble not thinking they're good fielders, but, I mean, and I'm not saying because the number says bad, that means bad, but I just wonder what the case is there, why they are being voted, or not voted, but estimated as being subpar fielders. Right. Okay, so we have the the uh, best player performance of the year, and it looks like most everybody voted for the same three, just in some other order. I think, remind me, how, am I wrong in saying the Smith, the Smith walk-off and the nine-run ninth were different games? Uh, same, same game. That's what I thought, because they're credited two different ways here. But The nine-run uh, ninth was capped by Seth Smith's right. three-run homer. Okay, so I can see, uh, yes, I can see where the distinguish, uh, or wh- wh- where they can be distinguished there. Um, everybody voted for the no-hitter first. That's it's funny, because I actually did not think the no, I mean, if it wasn't a no-hitter, I might not have voted for it. But because it was the first franchise no hitter, it's kind of hard not to pick that. Yeah, and I I, th- I think that should that sh- that should that should definitely be taken into consideration because the fact uh, that he walked was it five or six guys in that game. I mean, it, uh-huh. was, a, it, it was it was not a super impressive performance, other than the fact that nobody got a hit. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and and that is plenty for me. And and Grant, I I almost want to credit the entire team for that no hitter because it should be credited to the entire team, especially Dexter Fowler when he made that absurd flying catch in the gap in left center, yep. and Ubaldo said, wow. Uh-huh. People have have seemed to uh, comment that in many no-hitters and perfect games, there's always one or two crazy defensive performances yeah. that seem to arise out of the defenders taking a little bit, mo- a little bit more of a beating in order to keep the ball off the ground. Yep. But, uh, I mean, I, I will, I'm not actually trying to say that Ubaldo didn't do a good job. I was just more impressed with other starts he has made over the season. Like his start against San Francisco Memorial Day, I would I was actually more impressed by that start, even though there were hits allowed. But uh, you know, whatever. I will take the no hitter, and it could not go to a more deserving guy. Mm-hmm. And um, then your second pick was the uh, Carlos Gonzalez cycle. Honestly, a cycle. And, and see, the, the most recent cycle we saw before that was two Lewitskis in two thousand nine. But it was such a crap cycle. I mean, it counted. But it's it, he honestly yeah. had it was like a single that was stretched into a double because of a misplayed ball and a double that was tra- stretched into a triple because of a like a bad cutoff throw uh-huh. and it, while they count as doubles and triples it I don't know it seems stupid just didn't feel like a cycle to you it, it, I mean he he got it and I'm not going to try to take it away from him in fact I remember talking with other people about it and saying, hey, because they were talking about cycles over the year and they forgot two Lewitskis, and I was very upset about it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, who cares about us? We're a quadruple-A team, right? We're in the National League. Anyways, uh... We're in the NL worst. <laughs> yeah, right, even though it was... Yeah, whatever, punt. Um, he, uh... It, it, like I said, it counted, but I wasn't that impressed by it. It wasn't like he hit the triple and, and, and slid and got in, you know before he had to or whatever, it was all, if the defense had been a little sharper, he would have been out, thrown out twice. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean, like, if everything had been perfect and every gold glover was playing in that game. I mean, if the defense hadn't been incompetent, he would have been out twice. I would have even ruled his triple a double with an error, personally, if I recall how I scored that game. But uh, um, Gonzalez's cycle was far more legit, and the fact that it was capped off by a walk-off home run, I remember I was heading out to meet friends to go downtown, and I... uh 
flipped the game on in the car as I was driving, because I just left, uh, left, had, had to leave the television, and it said, and Gonzalez is up in the ninth, and I thought, oh my gosh, if he hits the home run here, that'll be the cycle, that'll cap the cycle, and then first pitch, he just destroys the baseball, and if you remember that, uh, right when he hit it, he just spiked, he didn't, like, spike the bat like a football, but the way he flings the bat, it just, it just emanated badassness, it was mm-hmm. phenomenal. Yeah, it was my number three pick, and then my number two pick was the nine-run ninth. Uh, your third pick is labeled as Tulo925. What did Tulo do on 925? That was his game against San Francisco where he was the offense. Like, he did everything in that game. He had a couple doubles, a homer. He had the walk-off hit that Gonzalez scored from mm-hmm. it, it, the double in the gap that he was able to get to. Just, I mean, the reason I cite that, and this is, again, stats here, but a 948 win percentage, win percentage added. That basically means that... He was responsible for 95% of the win. And that is why I consider that one of the best performances of the entire year, because just a phenomenal... Yeah, it was a home run and two doubles, and then a, I think a single in there as well. A 948 win percentage added. You just you, you cannot argue with that, how phenomenal that game was. Well, that, that's absurd. I, 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 you know, I, I don't usually look at the charts to uh, see the, all, all, all the WPA stuff, but I uh, am very impressed. 95% of the win, that's that's. Crazy. I love WPA so much, and I'll make this brief here, but the thought is, is that if a guy goes two for five in a game, you know, the standard stat line says, oh, he did well. Or I mean, even think about, like, back to, I think it was 2005, I want to say, when Preston Wilson was still with the team. My dad would always gripe and complain about Wilson because... He'd say, oh, he hits all his home runs when the game's already out of reach on either side. And I've never seen a guy take a, you know, look at so many third strikes with the bat on his shoulder, blah, 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 blah. And his, the entire rationale was he gets meaningless hits and strikes out when we need him to get hits and right. stuff like that. It adds, and, adds some context to when these things occur. Exactly. So if I look at a guy who has a great stat line, I'll still make the case that if he has a great stat line, he's a pretty decent player, even if his uh, um, timing is poor. But WPA kind of helps you meet in the middle and kind of uh, adds in the concept of, well, this guy uh, not only was good, but also had good timing. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, That is all of the things that I think we were set to talk about for this list. Are there any other 2010 ideas or moments or players that you want to give a shout-out to? As far as positivity goes... um. No, not really. I can't think of, a, of too much that uh, really wowed me this season. Uh, but we're, we, we've got such a positive tone for this podcast. Maybe we should wait until next week to go into the negatives because there's a lot more, <laughs> there's a lot of negatives about this season. You, you, you want to spend a podcast talking about Todd Helton and uh, other other disappointments? Well, Todd Helton, Chris Iannetta, Miguel Levo's second half, Seth Smith's second half. Um, everybody in the rotation not named Chasin or Jimenez or Hamill. Um, what did De La Rosa do other than be hurt for a long time? Uh, well, well, okay, it's, it it is a disappointment that he was hurt for half the season. That's so, part of it. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that a lot of the inconsistent Fowler and and and. I don't know, half the bullpen, and just a million guys that I not so much want to rave about, but there's things we could be saying about them. And I think we should end this on a positive note and say that we had some pretty phenomenal performances this year. Certainly. Uh, there were lots of enjoyable moments. So um, postseason continues this week. We have uh, We have two series 
that will definitely continue going on. It looks like the Reds are probably going to lose, meaning that Philadelphia will advance. So, um, in that case, uh, unless you have anything else, I'm dude. done. All right. Well, we'll see you next week. Uh, we're going to keep the podcast going on for now. They'll probably be a little shorter for the time being, and then we'll take a week off or two after the postseason's done, and then after that we'll see about covering some of the off-season stuff. So uh, we'll be back next week, and uh, we'll see you then. Bye.